Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist. And I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today. Are you wondering if your binge or emotional eating habits have triggered hormone and gut issues? Low energy, fatigue, bloating, brain fog, weight gain, more PMS, more menopause symptoms, more cravings, poor sleep, the list goes on. Did you know some of your hormone and gut symptoms can also fuel your emotional eating behaviors? Yes, they can. That's why it's so important to address the roots of your physical symptoms while working on the emotional mindset and self-love work. If you're ready to address each piece, be sure to check out Amber Omaniac, emotional eating, digestive and hormone expert, with nine years of experience helping over 1,200 women with support on all of the above and without diets, without restriction or any quick fixes. Amber will do a full health assessment and help you get to the root of your symptoms with hormone testing, gut health assessing, and of course, support to help your body come back to balance with your mind and soul. Visit amberapproved.ca to book a 30-minute body freedom call or check out the No Sugar Coating podcast today to learn more about the connections between our relationship with food, mindset, and our health. Now, today I want to talk all about self-compassion. Now, self-compassion is something you have probably heard about. It's talked quite a lot about these days on social media, in therapy, even between friends. It's something that has come much more into the mainstream. And maybe you're actively trying to practice it, you know, to offer yourself kindness and understanding when you're having a difficult day or when things go wrong. Or, like many people, you may feel quite sceptical of the whole thing. And I know myself, I used to be quite sceptical about self-compassion. I thought it was all a bit fluffy or woo-woo, and it just wasn't really my thing. And that's quite a surprise, because I think I tend to be quite drawn to the fluffy and woo-woo. But I was worried that if I became self-compassionate, that it would prevent me from achieving my goals or being successful. And I was worried that I might become really lazy, I would never do anything, and I would kind of give up on myself. So I think for many of us, when we think about being compassionate rather than self-compassionate, compassionate for others often does feel quite natural and correct. It's when we start to think about doing it for ourselves, it can feel strange or wrong. And like me, you may have been brought up to just get on with it if you're having a bad day. You might tend to brush your feelings under the carpet and present the coping front. So it's a very British thing as well, isn't it? I'm aware as well. I've got a lot of American listeners. So apologies here for all you guys who are listening out there in America, because I really appreciate your following of this podcast. It's incredible. But I guess in British culture, the typical kind of I'm fine when you're asked, how are you, is the natural response. So you might be quite self-critical, you might be quite harsh towards yourself. And you might even think that's quite a good thing, thinking, well, I deserve the judgment or criticism if I've messed up. Or you might think, well, if I actually am very judgmental and critical towards myself, 
somehow that's going to be a good thing and it's going to make me do better. So I think that's not unusual as well, that people do fear the softening of their inner critic. You might fear that you're going to give up all your motivation and drive if you become self-compassionate. You might just worry that you'll end up sitting at home watching Netflix and abandoning all your plans or goals. But the research shows that these fears are unfounded. By being self-compassionate, by forgiving and nurturing yourself, this can set the stage for better health, relationships and general well-being. And self-compassion yields the number of benefits shown through the research, including lower levels of anxiety and depression, raising self-esteem and building better body image. So many helpful ripple effects for our mental well-being. So self-compassionate people can recognise when they are suffering and can be kind to themselves at these times, which then reduces their anxiety and related depression. It makes a lot of sense. So having compassion for oneself is really no different from having compassion for others. So have a think as well, what does that experience of compassion feel like? So first, to have compassion for others, you must notice that they are suffering. For example, if you ignore that homeless person on the street, you can't feel the compassion for how difficult his or her experience is. But when you're kind of noticing and you're tuned in, you probably do feel that kind of pang of compassion. So that means as well, recognizing when you're feeling upset or anxious or alone, pausing to notice, so stopping to tune into those feelings. Secondly, compassion involves feeling moved by other suffering so that your heart responds to their pain. The word compassion literally means to suffer with. So when this occurs, you may feel warmth, caring and the desire to help the suffering person in some way. So if you see your friend crying, you might step in, ask them what's the matter. You might comfort them and be with them in their suffering. So self-compassion involves tending to your needs in the very same way, to actively responding with kind words to your pain. Having compassion also means that you offer understanding and kindness to others when they fail or make mistakes, rather than judging them harshly. And we're often so much better at doing this for others than for ourselves. Our standards can be unrealistically high and perfectionist, whereas for others, we can be so much more forgiving. So with self-compassion, it's beginning to offer yourself that same understanding and kindness that you would offer somebody else. So finally, as well, when you feel compassion for another, rather the mere pity, it means that you realise that suffering, failure and imperfection are all part of the shared human experience. We all have our difficult days. We all sometimes feel sad and alone. So self-compassion involves acting the same way towards yourself when you're having a difficult time, when you fail, when you notice something that you don't like about yourself. So instead of just ignoring your pain with a stiff upper lip mentality, you stop to tell yourself, this is really difficult right now. How can I comfort and care for myself in this moment? Now, while for some people, self-compassion might seem to come naturally, for many of us, we have to learn it. But luckily, it is a learnable skill. So you might wonder as well, why as human beings do we struggle so much with self-compassion? 
So to begin to understand this a bit more, we can look towards Paul Gilbert and Ken Goss's work in compassion-focused therapy. So they talk about, particularly if you have an eating disorder or other issues with your mental well-being, you may be prone to being self-critical and self-blaming. So self-compassionate thinking helps you move away from this. And they say, you're born into this world with no choice about the family you're born into, your social environment and your inherited genetics. Much of your design, including the way you think, is not your fault. And we are all in the same boat with this. You may have become self-blaming and self-punishing towards yourself feeling bad. But by accepting that you had no choice in the situation that you came into, this can be the first step to becoming more self-compassionate. Now, they also talk about our early life and how this impacts our ability to be compassionate towards ourselves. So if you're born into an abusive or hostile environment, then unsurprisingly, you will have grown up by developing a threat-focused approach to life. You'll be hypervigilant for danger and will tend to automatically go into fight or flight mode. So you're kind of ready to flee danger, to flee the bear. You might have developed safety strategies to cope and feel better. Things like restrictive eating, turning to food for like comfort, or maybe obsessively checking behaviours. You might hold a lot of shame inside due to these early experiences, and it may feel extremely hard to trust and be open with others. So you can see if you've had that more difficult early life, of course it's going to be harder to be compassionate towards oneself. Conversely, if you're born into a safe and nurturing environment, you're more likely to be open and trusting of others. You will likely feel calmer and more content. You will connect more easily with others without fear of threat or harm. And you might also find it easier to self-soothe and take care of yourself. So Gilbert and Goss as well talk about us having three emotional regulation systems. So we have these systems because we have to survive and reproduce and using our emotions, these are emotional regulation systems, is a way of helping us achieve our goals. So they talk about having these three emotional regulation systems. They talk about having the threat system. That's the one you might be very familiar with, the fight flight one, the one that helps you flee from danger, the one that keeps you alive, really, I guess. You know, if your house caught fire now, you wouldn't want to be hanging around. We then have the drive system as well. And the drive system is the one that gives us purpose and meaning. So when we get up in the morning, we might have a to-do list, we might have our jobs to do. And without the drive system, you know, life would probably be a bit boring. We need that kind of stimulation. But we also need the soothing system. So the soothing system is the one where we feel calm, where we relax, where we restore ourselves. And we know that many people in the Western world separately as well with eating disorders, but separately as well from eating disorders. Many people in the Western world are massively in the drive and the threat system and not enough in the soothe system. And when this happens, you become burned out and really stressed. And we know as well with eating disorders and disordered eating, you probably find it very hard to access the soothing system. So you probably turn to food. So either restricting food, over-exercising, emotional eating, all these things can be ways of trying to sort of shortcut to the soothing system, but obviously not really giving full proper soothing. 
So all three systems are important, the fight, flight, striving system and the soothing system. And they have different functions and work to balance and counterbalance one another. So dysfunction occurs when you overuse one system. For example, if you spend large amounts of time feeling very anxious, then you're spending a disproportionate amount of time in fight flight. And this can be emotionally exhausting. So just talk a little bit more about each system, but I'd really recommend as well, if you want to find out more about this, you know, have a Google of Compassion Focused Therapy and Ken Goss, Paul Gilbert's work, because they'll be more available on the internet. And it's such an interesting topic. So the fight flight system is the one that protects us, protects us from threats. In our bodies, the hormones related to this are adrenaline and cortisol. And often the feelings related to this are things like anger, anxiety, disgust, fear. So obviously we need that system. If we have to flee the bear, if we have to flee from danger, we need our body to be in that fight flight state so we can respond quickly and, you know, not be hanging around. So the purpose striving system motivates us towards an incentive and resources to survive. The hormone mainly involved in this is dopamine. So we get that real sense of satisfaction when we're in the purpose, in the purpose striving system. And it gives us those feelings of kind of achievement, pursuing, wanting, satisfaction. We can get a lot from the purpose and strive system. And then the self-soothing system is all about soothing, care and contentment. It helps us feel safe and content with the way things are. The main hormone involved is oxytocin and it makes us feel peaceful. That kind of feeling you get when you think about someone you love, when you think about maybe holding a new baby, when you think about stroking your pets, when you think about maybe being in bed under your duvet, feeling really safe and warm and secure. The self-soothing system is activated in all those examples. So distress is caused by an imbalance of the three systems, and often it's linked to the undevelopment of the self-soothing system. And it's so common in people with disordered eating. So like I've said before, restrictive eating, over-exercise, binge eating often become the shortcut to soothing. If you have overuse of the fight, flight or striving systems, you often as well have a very strong internal critical voice. It's fearful and it's judging. And you might think that this voice will motivate you into action, but really it's not true. Harsh words and criticism generally leave you feeling demotivated, demoralized and hopeless. So amplifying your fear of failure and causing you to withdraw and isolate from the world. But the good news is, as an adult, you can learn to activate your soothing emotional regulation system to reduce the fight flight response and bring more calmness, contentment and joy into your life. You can learn constructive and helpful coping strategies for dealing with emotions and you can slowly begin to let go of your old coping mechanisms, things like eating disorder behaviours or self-harm. So after I've been talking about all of this, you might want to think firstly and to reflect on what was my early life like? You know, was I spending a lot of time in fight, flight or striving or soothing? What experiences did I have which may have influenced the development of my nervous system? 
which emotional regulation place do you spend most time in? Do you spend a lot of time in fight, flight or striving or self-soothing? What's your balance like? And do you have strategies and ways to self-soothe? You know, do you feel like you have a toolbox? Do you even know what self-soothing means? You know, all good questions to reflect on. And to be encouraging towards you, it's worth remembering that we all have this innate ability to be compassionate. As human beings, we will often go out of our way to help others. We are often not so good at doing this for ourselves. But it's 100% worth learning to do this as an adult, though, for your mental and emotional well-being. Self-compassion reduces shame, encourages openness and brings a surge of oxytocin, that feel-good contentment that we have when we feel love, connection and it's where we feel safe. So how do we begin to become more self-compassionate? Where do we start? So Harvard psychologist Christopher Germer, in his book, The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion, suggests that there are five ways to bring self-compassion into your life via physical, mental, emotional, relational and spiritual methods. He and other experts have proposed a variety of ways to foster self-compassion. And here are a few. So number one, he talks about comforting your body. So doing things like resting, sitting in your favorite chair, lying down, eating something healthy or something tasty, massaging your own neck, your feet or your hands, taking a walk, anything you can do to improve how you feel physically gives you a dose of self-compassion. Number two, writing a letter to yourself. Now this might feel a bit of a weird thing to do, but I promise you this kind of stuff works. So Describe a situation that has caused you to feel pain. Maybe it's been a breakup in a relationship, a job loss, a poorly received presentation. Write a letter to yourself describing the situation without blaming anyone. But acknowledge your feelings. You know, imagine you're almost kind of mothering yourself or fathering yourself, offering yourself that support and just sort of being like a compassionate listener towards yourself. Number three, give yourself encouragement. If something bad or painful happens to you, think of what you would say to a good friend if the same thing happened to him or her or they. Direct these compassionate responses towards yourself. And the next one is practicing mindfulness. This is the non-judgmental observation of your own thoughts, feelings and actions without trying to suppress or deny them, becoming more that compassionate observer. So other things as well, regaining perspective. So I think sometimes when we're in the eye of the storm, we can feel very emotionally dysregulated, very fearful, very scared. But what we can do is zoom out, see the bigger picture, remind ourselves once more that we're connected to others. We're part of a much bigger picture common humanity. So to help us do this as well, what things can we do? So we can let go of the need for outside validation. Lots of our negative thinking comes from how others perceive us. And we put a lot of energy into that. It's really hard to feel good or compassionate towards yourself. If we're beating ourselves up for eating something, for instance, a lot of that self-directed anger stems from social pressures like the pressure to look a certain way or maintain a certain weight. 
So choosing to lessen the intensity of that tie to our happiness, to reduce the impact of those outside influences. And this can then be such an act of self-kindness with a much larger knock-on effect. Also as well, and I think this has helped me so much to become more compassionate, is really reaching out to others. So when we do this, I'm talking about the right people as well, people that we can trust, people that we can listen, people that are kind. When we do this, it helps to place our feelings in context. When we talk with others, we realise that we're not alone in feeling pain at different times. And it's an important part of reaffirming our sense of connectedness, reframing our perceived problems within the bigger picture and building social support networks that are invaluable to well-being. Because every human being suffers. No one has it all together. Once we reach out and talk to others, we kind of realise actually we're all kind of muddling along. No one is perfect. So Kristen Neff is also a leader in the world of compassion particularly self-compassion. So I'm going to talk about three main areas that Kristen advocates in becoming more self-compassionate. So initially, it's even just acknowledging that self-compassion is a helpful thing to do, even if you don't feel like it. So it's about acting first and the feelings will follow through. You are deserving of self-compassion as much as any other human being. So Kristen talks firstly as well about self-kindness So again, we're often exemplary at offering kindness and support to a good friend or pet when they need taking care of. And when you do this, your friend feels accepted and supported. But you need to learn to comfort and soothe yourself in the same way with your words, actions and thoughts. So for example, when you have a bad day, you take extra good care of yourself in the evening and throughout the day, in fact. You show yourself empathy and warmth. You don't berate yourself things not working out. So with your thoughts and words, you might say to yourself, never mind that it didn't work out. You know, some days are better, some days are worse. I had a tough day today. How can I take care of myself right now? Then through your actions, you might have a soothing bubble bath. You might phone a good friend. You might have a vent with your friend just to get your feelings off your chest. You might read a favorite book or watch a film. You might rest or listen to music. And you can think about activating the five senses with self-care. So think about sight, hearing, touch, smell and taste. How can you soothe yourself tuning into the five senses? The second thing Kristen talks about is acknowledging our shared humanity. So again, recognising we're all flawed human beings. No one has it all together. No one has it sussed out. And in your moments of failure and imperfection, you are not alone. Many people are going through similar difficulties right now in this very moment. And I always find that very reassuring. So I think when you're in the eye of the storm, it can feel like it's just me. I'm flawed. I'm messing up. But no, many, many people are going through the same thing right now. And the third part is becoming mindfully aware. And this means being able to acknowledge your thoughts and feelings without judgment, without avoiding them or without bottling them up. And this helps put some distance between your thoughts, feelings and yourself. So, for example, if you lose control of your eating without having mindful awareness, you might label yourself as a greedy person with no self-control. With awareness, you can take a step back and pause. You can reflect on what has happened. You can be curious and questioning of the event and offer yourself insight and understanding. 
to help with developing mindful awareness, slow down. I think it's such an important thing. So many of us are spinning so fast that we can't even begin to get a look in into what's going on in our minds. So allow yourself a little bit of time to get off the busy life treadmill. Every day, work to allow precious moments to slow down and reflect. And even if you have limited time, five minute snapshots can be hugely beneficial. So this might involve things like slowing down your breathing, connecting with your body. It could be going out into the garden and pottering around, pausing to look out of the window. It could be using a meditation app. It could be laying on the bed and resting. It could just be having a cup of tea and sitting down to drink it mindfully. So allow yourself to get support and to be open with trusted others. When you hold everything inside, you can feel so isolated and alone, assuming that everyone else is coping. When you share and practice openness, you realize that we are all in the same boat, muddling imperfectly along. Openness encourages mutual support, empathy, and builds trust. So self-compassion takes practice. It is absolutely worth the investment, though. Becoming a good friend to yourself is one of the most effective ways to improve and sustain positive mental health. So I hope this has given you some different perspectives on self-compassion. And if you've been a skeptic, maybe you can begin to consider viewing self-compassion a bit differently and start to think about how you can begin to be just a little more self-compassionate every single day and just try it as an experiment. You don't have to continue it. Just try it and see how it makes you feel. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. For further support with your relationship with food, do go to the eatingdisordertherapist.co.uk. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would be so grateful if you'd follow, rate and review as it helped it reach so many more listeners. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon. Mm -hmm.